0: I think it's going to be an interesting one. Um, it is, as you probably know, LGBT+ History Month. But the issues that Caroline and I were talking about are never that far away from the news. If, certainly if you're a keen observer of events, you know, these are these these issues still have much uh, currency, saliency with what's going on around us.
1: Hello and welcome to another Research at OU Law School podcast. On this episode we take part in the LGBTQ History Month and my two colleagues Caroline Derry and Andrew Gilbert talk about two periods in British history and the regulation of same-sex relationships by the British Parliament. The talk is titled Voices from Parliament, From Gross Indecency Between Women to Pretended Family Relationships. Just a warning, some of the words quoted in the speeches uh, in Parliament are quite harsh towards members of the LGBTQ community. So please take that in a, as an advisement while listening to this podcast. I enjoyed Caroline's and Andrew's uh, presentations, and I hope you will too. Now on with the show.
0: Um, Caroline had this, the idea for this session. I was very happy to, to be involved. Um, it's you know we both research on the law around the relationship between. Um, uh, or rather, the relationship between law and sexuality and relationships. My work has looked particularly at legal regulation of um, those areas. And Caroline's perhaps more on what the law hasn't regulated, um, in particular, uh, lesbianism, and that's uh, the topic of her recently published book, which she'll draw upon in her talk. Um, but One of the links will be, um, the links between our two talks, I'll be looking at section 28 of the Local Government Act, is that um, that mostly concerned the regulation of men and women were largely invisible uh, in a lot of those uh, debates. So there is some link I think between our two talks, Uh, but I'll let let you draw other links yourselves perhaps as you listen. So Caroline and I will speak for about 20 minutes each, then there'll be a time for questions, Uh, So sit back and enjoy, and I'll hand over to Caroline.
2: Thank you. So let me just bring up the slide. Right. So in 1921, Parliament debated the legality of sex between women for the first time. MPs and peers all agreed that it was wrong and needed to be prevented. And yet the end result was that it was not criminalised. And I'll discuss why that was. But before we look at the debate itself, let's start just over 35 years earlier in 1885. So the main purpose of the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 was to raise the age at which girls could consent to sexual intercourse from 12 to 16. However, it also contained other provisions, and the most notorious was Section 11, also known as the Labouchere Amendment, which criminalised gross indecency between men. And gross indecency, basically covered any sexual activity, any sexual touching, except penile penetration, which was a separate, much more serious offence. I'm not going to say anything about the debate on the Labouchere Amendment. Because there wasn't one. The radical MP, Henry Labouchere introduced the amendment at the last minute. The government accepted it and hardly anyone was in the debating chamber anyway when it went through. In any event, MPs weren't fantastically keen on discussing homosexuality. Rather, they, like legal authors, were very fond of talking at length about how the topic shouldn't be talked about. But importantly, the Labouchere Amendment didn't really change the law. It was intended to make sex between men, which was already criminal, easier to prosecute. There's a myth, though, the gross indecency between women wasn't criminalised at the same time because Queen Victoria didn't believe it existed. And that is very much a myth. The subject wasn't even raised for reasons I'll explain shortly. The Queen's views on the topic were irrelevant anyway because she could never have stopped a single clause becoming law. Technically, she could have refused to give royal assent to the whole bill, which would stop the whole of the act having become law, but that would have provoked a constitutional crisis. So it wasn't going to happen. But it's the myth that just won't die. Um, When I tell people I research lesbianism and the criminal law, The most common response is to say something about Queen Victoria. Um, the, The importance of the myth surviving is that it contributes to a misconception that lesbianism was either subject to benign neglect or was even actively tolerated. And we'll see shortly that that was not true. The real reasons that sex between women wasn't discussed were raised in Parliament in the 1921 debates. And the legislation under discussion was on the same theme as the 1885 Act, the age of consent, because the earlier law had some significant problems. There was a time limit of six months for bringing age of consent prosecutions, which made most of them impossible because cases were usually discovered when the girl couldn't hide her pregnancy anymore, which tends to be a bit more than six months after the event. There was also a defence of reasonable belief that the girl was in fact 16 or over, and that turned out to be really easy to use in court, so it was very hard to get convictions. And the age of consent to sexual activity other than intercourse hadn't been raised, so it was still 12. There was a lot of support in 1921 for changing the law to address those problems, but there were also a small minority of MPs who saw it as an unjustified threat to men. Basically, and obviously I'm paraphrasing quite a lot here, Um, They they were concerned that middle class men might get prosecuted for exercising their right to seduce very young working class women. And those MPs knew that they were going to be outvoted. The Act would pass on a vote, but there was another way they could stop it. There was very little time available in Parliament for the bill. So if they could add a controversial amendment, which needed lots of time for debating, then this bill would run out of time before it could become law. Um, So that's what they did. Um, the MPs who did this were three conservative men who also happened to be barristers, Frederick McQuiston, Howard Gritton and Sir Ernest Wilde. So you can see Wilde on the um Slide there, because he's the one i'll I'll be quoting from most, and uh, the controversial topic they chose was gross indecency between women, in other words, sex between women. now I've already said that everyone who spoke in these debates in the Commons and Lords agreed that sex between women was a bad thing, so you might wonder why the amendment was controversial if everyone agreed well, the answer. Is that the silence, the legal silence about relationships between women wasn't an accident and it wasn't a sign of tolerance. Rather, it was a deliberate strategy to suppress those relationships because the assumption was that if respectable women weren't told about it, they wouldn't discover it for themselves and thus their innocence would be preserved. And that might sound ludicrous to us now. Um, But there are two reasons that it made sense to those men at that time. First, um, they still had Victorian conceptions of sexuality, which could be summarised as a sharply binary model. Men were active and desiring. Women were passive and either completely desireless or only experienced desire in response to a man's advances. So two passive, undesiring females were not going to discover lesbian sex by themselves. Secondly, we're talking about respectable women, which was shorthand for white, British and higher class. Lesbianism was admitted to exist elsewhere in the world, in India, in Turkey, even in France. And if was um, accepted it could uh, exist amongst the lowest classes. So servants were seen as a possible source of corruption, for example. But these men were sure that it wasn't to be found amongst their own wives and daughters, at least not unless they were corrupted. And I'm sort of using lesbianism and sex between women interchangeably, because obviously they are not um, generally. But in these debates, that was what was being talked about because we'll see that what MPs and peers feared was women's wholesale conversion from heterosexuality. They really weren't contemplating bisexuality as a possibility. So some MPs and more or less all peers who spoke in the debates took a common view of the amendment, criminalising gross indecency between women, would be a very bad idea because the existence of the offence would advertise the existence of the possibility. So to the Earl of Malmesbury, the very subject was polluting. He said, the more you advertise vice by prohibiting it, the more you will increase it. The Earl of Dessart, who was the former director of public prosecution, so a very, very experienced and senior prosecution lawyer, painted a terrifying picture. He said, suppose there were a prosecution, it would be made public to thousands of people that there was this offence, that there was such a horror. And that would be a disaster because he continued, the mere discussion tends in the minds of unbalanced people, of whom there are many, to create the idea of an offence of which the enormous majority of them have never even heard. And Lieutenant Colonel Moore Brabazon expressed a similar concern for the minds of perfectly innocent people. Continued silencing would keep that innocence untainted by what he described as the most revolting thoughts. And that was essential because women who did try lesbianism were apparently never going to go back to heterosexuality. Sir Ernest Wilde asserted, it is a well-known fact that any woman who indulges in this vice will have nothing whatever to do with the other sex. As I said, bisexuality wasn't contemplated. Or to put it another way, these men were terribly insecure about their own appeal to their wives, who would apparently prefer the love of another woman even if it led, as Wilde went on to claim, to childlessness, debauchery, neurasthenia and insanity. And as far as one can tell from the debates, they may have had cause because there was a definite lack of sexual imagination of work. Um, Now, overall, they managed not to say what they were talking about, let alone what they imagined women might do. It was a beastly subject. However, there is an important clue um, that, in line with dominant sexual discourses of the period, they had trouble envisaging anything other than penetrative sex. So, no full play. Um, the Bishop of Norwich wrote to the Lord Chancellor's office that if the amendment were to be accepted, it would be almost impossible to prove the offence, so it should be extended to include the sale of any implements required for the purposes indicated. The Lord Chancellor conveyed his views to the Bishop that any further clause regarding prohibition of the sale of instruments would provoke as much debate as the main clause and therefore shouldn't be added. So the letters um, are a vivid illustration of the legal and cultural incomprehensibility of sex other than penetration. So the debates presented lesbianism as a potent temptation for parliamentarians' wives, and the men were very anxious about it. Those who opposed criminalisation did so because they thought it was the best way of preventing its spread, Not because they were remotely tolerant. They very much were not. Um, So Moore Brabazon summarised the history of regulation as having involved three options. And he said, the first is the death sentence that has been tried in old times. And though drastic, it does do what is required. That is stamp them out. The second is to look upon them, frankly, as lunatics and lock them up for the rest of their lives. That is a very satisfactory way also. It gets rid of them. The third way is to leave them entirely alone, not to notice them, not advertise them. That is the method that has been adopted in England for many hundred years. So his satisfaction at extreme violence and confinement of lesbian women is evident, silencing is equated to those brutal methods of control and understood to serve the same ends. There's nothing here about tolerating it at all. And while Moore Brabazon and his colleagues were speaking in the third decade of the 20th century, parliamentarians' understanding of sexuality was basically a Victorian one. By the 1920s the science of sexology was decades old and it had a firm hold in Britain albeit only among a small number of people um, and those were not only researchers but also reformers including many prominent feminists so Alison Neelands of the Association of Moral and Social Hygiene which despite its improbable name led the campaign for the act um, She also wrote in the association's journal in support of decriminalising sex between men. And she herself had recently set up home with another woman with whom she'd lived for the rest of her life. Um, sexology wasn't straightforwardly progressive by any means. Its leading British exponent, Henry Havelock Ellis, talked about the female invert, As a woman who had many innate masculine characteristics, she was masculine in mind, body and demeanour and could seduce the female pseudo-invert, who was feminine, from heterosexuality. Now, the female invert isn't a straightforward analogue of the lesbian um, because she overlaps also with the contemporary trans man. So, the invert it doesn't simply map onto the le- today's lesbian, um, but in any event, she didn't really feature in the 1921 debates. Um, rather, older ideas were followed in which all women were vulnerable to corruption, and rigid suppression of the forbidden knowledge was therefore vital. And most MPs and peers were confident that the policy of silence was working. Sex between women was a rarity, of which the Lord Chancellor claimed 999 women in a 1,000 were unaware. The proposers of the amendment did try to paint a different picture of a growing menace. So, Ernest Wilde claimed cases were being confessed weekly to one leading nerve specialist. But, even though he was making that claim, Wilde only referred to the sexologists to give his claims a veneer of scientific authority. He didn't engage seriously with their ideas, which was unsurprising because they tended not to favour criminal offences. The reality was that parliamentarians didn't see this as a matter of specifically scientific knowledge so much as of privileged male knowledge. These men knew about it from their education in Latin and Greek and from their professions as medical men Or as barristers. Respectable women and working class men were deemed to be completely ignorant of it. Um, So Colonel Wedgwood, a middle class Labour MP, said his fellow Labour MPs mightn't understand the debate because they didn't share the knowledge which the ordinary boy gained at public school from the classics, which he reads about what is known as lesbian vice. So the debate, although expressed in universal terms, was very much about white middle-class women. The racialized undertones are apparent in the comment of a liberal MP, Horatio Bottomley, that the only thing that appealed about raising the consent was the attempt to maintain the purity of our women. So in summary, the 1921 debates make it clear that lesbianism was understood as a moral danger. But more than that, it was an existential threat to the patriarchal family. Its absence from the statute books wasn't an accident or oversight or a sign of toleration or indifference, but a deliberate strategy of silencing, which was repressive and rooted in hostility. Sex between women was only mentioned in Parliament in 1921 as a desperate last ditched attempt to stop legislation, which infringed on the perceived sexual prerogatives of privileged men. And the strategy worked in the short term because the bill ran out of time. Um, but the act was passed the following year, albeit the topic of sex between women was never raised again. The silencing of lesbianism had a much longer political active uh, afterlife, though, um, and had a much longer legal afterlife. It it persisted for decades. Um, It's true that a few years later, the courts were forced to consider sexological ideas. In 1928, Radcliffe Hall's novel, The Well of Loneliness, which was based upon sexological conceptions of the female invert, was found obscene because it argued that such women should be tolerated rather than condemned. But almost immediately, the courts returned to ignoring sexology and doing everything in their power to silence the possibility of sex between women. Um, And I haven't got time to talk about it, but there was one case where Sir Ernest Wilde himself did exactly that. Um, Shortly after 1922, he um, left Parliament and became a senior judge at the Old Bailey. Um, so sex between women disappeared from parliamentary discussion. It disappeared from discussion in the legal system, in, in the criminal legal system. Um, and as Alison Oram has established, that wouldn't begin to change until the 1950s. And the criminalisation of lesbianism wasn't debated in Parliament again. Indeed, lesbians basically disappeared almost entirely, not entirely, but almost entirely from parliamentary debate until the latter part of the century um, in debates which Andrew will now discuss. So, over to Andrew.
0: Thank you, Caroline. What a lovely link. Let me um, share my screen. Great. Hopefully you can all see that. So, um, yes, and uh, certainly some of Caroline's themes uh, will be uh, evident in what I'm going to talk about. So over the last um, century or so, the law regulating homosexuality has tended to move more or less in the direction of increasing liberalisation. I mean, we've seen decriminalisation of some um, homosexual acts, uh, equalisation of the age of consent, um, I think someone's got their mic on, I don't know if you can. Um, Same-sex couple adoption, civil partnership act and the same-sex and same-sex marriage. However, Section 28, which I'm going to talk about of the Local Government Act 1988, stands out as the first piece of legislation in 100 years to reverse the trend of giving greater rights and recognition to the lives of gay men and lesbians. So, Just for those of us who aren't familiar with the wording of Section 28, um, and it it is quite startling in, in many ways still, um, this is this is it. It actually goes on to amend another act, but this is the operative wording. So, a local authority uh, shall not intentionally promote homosexuality or publish material with the intention of promoting homosexuality, and um, it shall not promote the teaching in any maintained school of the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. So, I just want to talk a bit about. Firstly, um, what caused this? How did we get to the point where we've kind of turned back the clock of um, progress? If you see it as progress, I, I should add um, over a period of uh, decades to to this piece of legislation. Well, this is quite an interesting uh, window on what British people were thinking. The British Social Attitudes Survey began in 1983. And in that year, 50% of respondents agreed with the statement that sexual relations between two adults of the same sex are always wrong. And it would be another 10 years before it returned to that level, rising to 59% in 1985 and peaking at 64% in 1987, which is the year when the local government bill is going through Parliament. Also in 1987, the percentage of the surveyed population who thought homosexuality was always or mostly wrong had climbed to 74%. Uh, The emergence of AIDS in the early 80s was instrumental in reversing the growing acceptance of gay men and women in society and in causing in the popular mind an association between homosexuality, particularly as it relates to men, and disease. Now into this mix was added the Conservative Party's rhetorical emphasis on so-called Victorian values, nice link with Caroline's talk, especially around the heterosexual married family, and its concerns about, again, so-called loony-left councils run by the Labour Party. And this latter point provides part of the background to the Local Government Act, which was primarily aimed at getting better value for money from local councils. So. How does this relate to um to the to the uh, section 28 itself well it was of course and uh, in many ways still is the lo- the function or a function of local councils um to provide education um, sex edu- including sex education uh, libraries and fund volunteer groups and it was this area which prov- proved the catalyst for a law against promoting homosexuality as a pretended family relationship And those last three words, not surprisingly, pretended family relationship, proved particularly incendiary to opponents, as well as being, uh, we might say as lawyers, poorly drafted, because homosexuality isn't a family relationship in the same way that heterosexuality isn't a family relationship. They are orientations, of course. So supporters of Section 28 opposed councils using taxpayers' money to... For example stock libraries with books, um, certain books which they saw as promoting homosexuality and harming children. And here are two examples that came up a lot in the parliamentary debates um, and they're somewhat now notorious. Jenny lives with Eric and Martin. is a Danish book about a uh, father and his daughter who lived together with the father's um, homosexual partner. Um, if you If you have that book, it's probably worth quite a lot of money. On Amazon There's only one copy and it's worth apparently a few thousand pounds. I don't know if if anyone's actually would buy it for that. But It's very hard to get hold of a copy um, for love or money. And the other other book which is mentioned was a young person's novel, um, which was apparently stocked in the children's section of a library in Haringey called The Milkman's On His Way. Uh, I'll come back to the point about evidence um, later. And the other issue was funding gay community groups. Now, the extent to which... This was all going on was contested during the debates, uh, and it was a key point of contention between between the opponents and the uh, supporters. Now, section 28 has a bit of a backstory. I should just give you a bit of a trigger warning, maybe in in uh, in, in advance of this quote. Um, section 28 had uh, a former life as an amendment proposed by a crossbench peer, Tony Gifford, who was the third Earl of Hallsbury. The first Earl was he of Hallsbury's Laws. Um, Gifford was also one time Chancellor of Brunel, and he did various other things. Um, Now he proposed this amendment, which is identical in effect to what became Section 28, but it was a year or two earlier in 1986. And in supporting his amendment, he said this, I was referring to male homosexuals. I did not think then that lesbians were a problem. They do not molest girls. They do not indulge in disgusting and unnatural practices like buggery. They're not wildly promiscuous and they do not spread venereal disease. We emancipate homosexuals and they condemn heterosexism as chauvinist sexism, male oppression and so on. They will push us off the pavement if we give them a chance. Now that is from the individual out of whose... Mind, if you like, Section 28 originated. That is, in many ways, the, the the wellspring of this section. In that debate, there was some other contributions, which again kind of gave a, this these give a good flavour of the debate at the time. Other lords denied, and this is an enduring theme, that they were setting out to discriminate, and spoke of gay people in pitying terms. This is Lord Campbell. The bill is not designed to harass or humiliate homosexuals. They are often sad and lonely people. Unable to have stable relationships. And they are, I'm sure all of your lordships will agree, worthy of compassion. And then Lord Longford um, added, again, the emphasis being on gay men rather than women. That homosexuals, in my submission, are handicapped people. I think particularly of male homosexuals because, as I think the noble earl, Lord Halisbury, brought out, lesbians are no danger. Again, interesting just uh, having heard Caroline's talk, how that relates to uh, the debates earlier in that century. So the, uh, this particular amendment would have passed into law were it not for the general election 1987 intervening. So um, uh, it had uh, support, it looked like it was going to pass, but then the election was called in June, just before it was called, uh, Margaret Thatcher was asked in prime minister's questions um about this provision and she said it was quote a great pity that the amendment did not become law and hoped that it would do so in the next session so this i this policy proposal had support at the very high the very highest levels of government and it was not a minority or minor issue um this is a conservative party campaign poster from the general election and um You can see the headline there and those titles are, again, books which were mentioned in some of the debates, which were apparently available or circulating in Labour councils, in libraries or um, maybe schools in an education context. And there's a rather nice slogan which has no hint of irony uh, there at the bottom. Take the politics out of education, vote Conservative. Uh, course it's just politics in a different in a different name or a different um, colour. So that clause failed, it reappeared very soon after. And um, so the election was held in June. The Conservatives were returned with a smaller majority, about fifty or sixty I think. And we're very much at the kind of high point of Thatcherism uh, even though it's, it's kind of on the decline in terms of its kind of moral tone and its um, sense of dominating the political space. It's very much kind of a high. This is very much a high fact right policy. We see in section 28. So a newly elected um, backbencher called David Wilshire pops up and proposes this amendment at the committee stage of the local government bill. Now uh, Wilshire, again, we're seeing this kind of enduring theme. He claimed you know, he was not out to get homosexuals per se. And this is what he says in support of his clause. The clause is not a criticism of homosexuals, an attack on private behaviour or a restraint on giving people help for whatever reason, um, if, they re- if they require it. So the bill, you know, is not um, designed to do that, but it's designed, as Jill Knight said, Jill Knight was another arch kind of proponent of the clause and had worked with Michael Howard who was the minister in preparing it. The whole thinking behind the bill is the need to protect children and again this is one of the themes which runs through that it's not about um, you know denying the rights of gay and lesbian people, it's about protecting children. Uh, That was how a lot of proponents justified their position. So The bill then proceeds through its various parliamentary stages. I'm just going to pick out a few um, comments from individuals in those debates. Simon Hughes, who was uh, Lib Dem MP and who has his own backstory as a gay man, um, uh, who, well, I won't go into it now, but uh, so he was very much against the provision. In fact, one thing which united Both supporters of Section 28 and opponents of it was that no one wanted to promote homosexuality. So, even um, the supporters of the bill, um, being in many respects classical liberals, didn't want to support any particular lifestyle. They just wanted, as Simon Hughes puts it, for everyone to be equal. So, he says, I do not believe that homosexuals want their sexuality to be promoted any more than anyone else does. They would argue not for discrimination in their favour, but for equal treatment with everyone else. And Joan Ruddock, a Labour MP, picks up a similar theme. It's a question of fundamental civil liberties, which bears heavily upon us. I'm sure that honourable members do not need to be reminded that it's in the treatment of its minorities that the real test lies of any nation's commitment to freedom and human rights. It's Elegantly put there, um, again, a very kind of classical liberal uh, position about uh, the protection of minorities in a democracy. But perhaps some did overstate it. Uh, Chris Smith, a Labour MP, I think at the time, an out um, gay man said, the clause is deeply damaging to the individual liberties of millions of citizens. I think that's probably overstating it because if we go back to what the clause says, it was addressed at local authorities. It was designed to stop them promoting homosexuality. Arguably, it didn't directly impact on individual liberties, um, although what it did do is um, certainly, I think this is a reasonable claim of opponents. It very much affected the atmosphere, the national discourse, um, an attitude towards gay and lesbian people, which probably set back um, the, the that cause for for a number of years. So it created a very much a climate uh, which was not conducive to. Um, being accepting of such uh, individuals and the way they live their lives. So um, as the debate was wrapping up, um, there were various concerns about um, the meaning of promotion. The government never really clarified that point. What did it mean to promote homosexuality? The government was very concerned that the clause did not inhibit its efforts in fighting AIDS, uh, and in fact, there is another clause which follows in section 28 about this. Doesn't mean local authorities are not to um, uh, take efforts to um, deal with kind of disease and so on. But um, it, there was definite concerns around the, the terminology, and things were never really clarified. There was also a lot of concern about where the evidence was for the clause's mischief, with proponents uh, constantly. Pushing back against the arguments that this was going on all over the place and individuals were, um, you know, children were being subject to uh, you know, sex education lessons around homosexual activity. There's very little evidence for that happening. And as they're wrapping up, David Wilshire says, um, which kind of quite nicely characterizes a lot of the uh, flavor of the supporters. Uh, contributions to the debate. I see no reason to apologise for standing here and defending the family. The overwhelming majority of the people whom I represent would expect me to do no less. And then Michael Howard uh, in a speech which contains a kind of of web of contradictions really. However, we think that clause 8 is necessary. We do not think that it is damaging. It is not right for pupils to be taught in any school that homosexuality is the norm. It is even less acceptable for local authority to promote such teaching. We're all against discrimination. We all want to protect civil rights. So uh, uncovering actual motivations is not always easy in the debates because the language uh, contains often quite rich contradictions. Just to again put some context into what was going on in the outside world and the impact these debates were having and the proposal was having. Uh, There was a number of very high profile instances, some of you may remember these. Um, During one of the House of Lords debates, uh, some women absailed from the public gallery onto the floor of the House of Lords, where they were then um, arrested and escorted off the premises. Uh, And then in Manchester and in London, on the 20th of February, there were marches of around um, 10 and 15,000 people against the clause. And you'll see here in this picture in the centre, Michael Cashman, and uh, on the right, Ian McKellen, who went on to be founders, amongst others, of Stonewall the following year. And then, I think I was uh, watching this at the news at the time, some of you may remember that a number of women stormed the BBC Six O'Clock News Studio, as it was going live on the 23rd of May, 88. One of them handcuffed herself to the cable on the floor uh, whilst Sue Lawley tried to continue reading the news. So there was a lot of um, uh, activism going on around um, the clause at the time. And indeed, once it passed into law, it didn't go away and it rumbled on for many years. Uh, And in fact, in Prime Minister's questions in the year 2000, William Hague raised the following point with Tony Blair. He said, when will he realise that the majority in this country are tolerant and understanding, but they do not want their children subject to politically correct propaganda? So again, this enduring idea of it's all about protecting children. But Blair always, whenever we may think of him, an astute political operator, um, He saw through that, uh, or so he believed, and this was his response uh, about what he thought were supporters' real motivations. The truth of the matter is that the campaign is based on people who do not want to come out and say that they are prejudiced against gay people. They do not want to say they're prejudiced against gay people, so they hide behind the issue of child protection. So one of the enduring themes very much of the debates of the clause and section as it went on. So just to wrap up with a few thoughts about the legacy of Section 28. It certainly wasn't a flash in the plan and it was law until 2000 in Scotland and 2003 in England and Wales. Um, It never applied in Northern Ireland. And of its 15 years on the statute book, nine of those were under the Conservatives and six under Labour. Labour did try to repeal it in the Local Government Act 2000, but were defeated by Conservative-led opposition in the Lords, and then they abandoned the idea in order to save the rest of the legislation. It was eventually repealed in 2003, in spite of widespread Conservative opposition still, including from David Cameron, who later apologised for his decision in 2009. It can be argued, though, that the Conservatives scored a spectacular own goal with Section 28, because firstly, you know, the evidence about how much promotion was actually going on is contested, probably not much more than a, on a small scale. Second, it served as a very effective recruiting sergeant, recruiting sergeant for the gay cause and politicised a generation of gay, gay men and lesbians, uh, very much brought them into the political um, uh, campaigning mainstream. And It led directly to the founding of lobby group Stonewall in 1989, as I said. And of course, it very much damaged the reputation of the Conservative Party. Um, there were some small victories for its supporters. Abbott and Wallace in 92 lists some. Apparently, Jenny Lewis, Lerick, and Martin was removed from library shelves in Wolverhampton. Um, and there is a, f- a couple of other examples they give, you can see there, about small changes. Now, some commentators have said just as I close, that the legislation was pointless because no legal action was ever taken against the local authority for breach of Section 28. But that's really, as we know, to misunderstand how law works. Um, we wouldn't measure the law, the effectiveness of the law of murder by how many convictions there are for murder. Um, we would, the law of murder is effective if people aren't being murdered. So you can argue that um, the fact that there weren't any wasn't any legal action taken either means that promotion of homosexuality was going on by councils but it wasn't but enforcement wasn't taking place or that promotion was not going on or a combination of those two and I think it's probably fairly safe to say that at least to some extent section 28 was effective in very much um, limit, you know, controlling and limiting the actions of local authorities and more broadly having what some have said uh, a chilling effect on the general discourse narratives around homosexuality as a lifestyle, as a decision, as an orientation, um, as a as a fact of uh, in individuals' lives. And then just one final point just to perhaps as we lead into questions is, um, which is about representative democracy because if we go back to you know the british social attitudes survey, if we put the emphasis on representative, then you might argue that this section twenty eight did represent um, the views of um, many uh, people the majority of people in the u k at the time, but if we put the emphasis on democracy and we give it some substantive content i e Um, The protection of minority rights and interests, then this is very much something which would strike at the heart of that. So, um, Section 28 is a fascinating uh, period in British history and uh, those are the comments I'm going to make about it. I'll stop talking for now. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy making it. As ever, you can find out more about us at the Law School's website, Take care and hope to see you again.